Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, the podcast series that talks to people who stand up, speak out, or challenge us to think a little differently. My guest today is renowned coach, author, and a leader in the field of personal development, Jack Black. He has worked with countless organisations. He's spoken on stage in front of thousands of people across the world, including the Pendulum Summit in Ireland. Over half a million people have taken the courses that he runs through his company, Mindstore. And many years ago, I was one of the people on one of those courses. I was working in an internet company at the time who seemed to have a lot of budget for investing in team building exercises and we went on loads of courses like this and I can still distinctly remember the talk. Um, I remember Jack Black, I remember his energy, I remember his Scottish accent which you're about to hear and it was the first time I'd heard somebody speak this way. We hear it a lot more now with the power of positive thinking and all that side of things. Uh, but it was my first introduction to anything like that, that your mindset can significantly impact on how you goal set, how you plan, how you achieve. And it was the 90s. So Spice Girls were huge. Sidebar, wait until you hear Spice Girls being said in a Glasgow accent during the interview. The Spice Girls were seemingly ordinary girls who just had it all then, had a dream, went for it and were achieving it. There was a whole air around that, that anybody could do the same. So I talked to Jack a little bit about that and I also put to him about toxic positivity and how important it is for us to acknowledge the hardships in life and not necessarily try to paste over them with some sort of quote you see on Instagram. I asked him about celebrating the mediocre a little bit more and the average instead of promoting this striving mentality to be the best all of the time. But I started out by asking a question that you might be asking yourself if you clicked through expecting to hear the American actor and frontman of Tenacious D, the other Jack Black. Is Jack Black your real name? That's a, a question I've always wanted to ask you. Yes, it is in fact my own name. And I had the name long before the actor. <laughs> <laughs> he was copying you. So what it was, was life like for Jack Black growing up in, in Glasgow? Well, I I, I started out, uh, you know, yeah, obviously I was born in Glasgow. Uh, I grew up in, in a initially... In part of Glasgow, then went then then after about two years, we moved outside of that particular part of Glasgow, and from I went back to both places as a social worker. Uh, they were uh, very very deprived areas of Glasgow. You know, I didn't experience that as a child. I wasn't aware of it, but 
I went back there as a social worker, which was interesting as part of my career. I, I really grew up in a new town called Cumbernauld, which is about 12, 15 miles north of Glasgow. Um, but anybody living in and around Glasgow feels they're Glaswegians. <laughs> it's just the way it is. And um, yeah, I had a, I, I was very blessed. I had fantastic parents who were quite aspirational. Um, you know, I, I did well at school. Uh, I had great friends. I, yeah, I, I grew up in a new town, so a lot of positivity around anyway in terms of new beginnings. Um, quite an exciting, uh, yeah, quite an exciting upbringing, I would think, to be honest. And working as a social worker, I think that's interesting because social workers are change makers in themselves, that they want to affect change and help people. What was that experience like? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I work primarily with young people who we, we termed who were at risk, you know, gangs on the streets. I work on the streets with them primarily. And then I moved from working as within the social work kind of department within within uh, Glasgow uh, to education. I started working with them in larger groups, um, and then it was it was during my work there um, that, that led me to what I'm doing now. I, I I was ten years working in that environment in the East End of Glasgow, and um, I started running skiing trips. Um, as a means of raising money for charity. I would, I would have social workers and teachers and other people coming skiing trips at the weekend, and the money we raised, I re- reinvested back into the community, as it were, uh, and to help with some of the projects I was doing. And at the same time, I had that experience very, very abruptly when three people, not one of them reached their 40th birthday, who actually dropped down dead on me within a fortnight. One was one of Her Majesty's inspectors of education, an amazing guy. Um, one was my boss, ultimate boss, the assistant director of education for the biggest authority in Europe at the time, and my wife's mother. One had a stroke, one had a heart attack, one had a tumour in his brain that did something that killed him. And um, it rocked me to my core. It was within a fortnight. As I say, they were 39 years old, each of them. Back then, and still to this day, Glasgow is amongst the highest, you know, it's probably number one in the league table of where you can die prematurely from heart disease, cancer, strokes. It's not really changed in the 30-odd years that I've been doing what I've been doing. But what happened to me was that because, and and these were amazing people, and and I get really upset about it from a, I, I believe in something bigger than you and I, shall we say. And I thought, well, why why would you take these amazing people? You know, because I'd work in communities where there were some really evil people and you think, why would you take them? And I get kind of angry about that in a silly way. And then I, when I looked at it, I realised actually what killed these people was stress. But 30 years ago and more, nobody in Scotland, nobody in Glasgow, in fact, I know because I've been in Dublin so often, nobody in Ireland anywhere was really talking about stress. It seems bizarre now, but back then, stress was for wimps. It was never really accepted as being real. And if you did admit to being stressed, you were somehow weak. You were no use to anybody. But in fact, I knew it was stress. And to cut a long story short, in, in running in running my own uh, running those 
events to raise money, I started doing it the following year um, as a business because there's no longer a need to create it for charity and people still wanted to go on the trip. So I started a business, kept my job going, had this business. I was working about 80 hours a week between both and I collapsed in a hairdresser's in Glasgow City Centre and it was the collapsing and getting that first, maybe my last warning. You can't live your life like this. You need to find a way of managing your stress. It was that was the turning point. I went looking, and back then, of course, there was no internet. There was nothing like this. So I started looking at books and stuff, and I had a breakthrough. I, had a, I woke up with a dream one night where I had an idea that came through the dream, and I I started writing ideas and developing ideas, and I got the confidence to go out and. What was that initial dream that you had? What was the first little well, message that you you, you, you got or wrote in? A, yeah, what I'd figured out was, I'd figured out that when, because of all the things that were going on back then in terms of breakthroughs and what we now would call neuroscience, we weren't calling it that then, but some of the stuff that was going on in terms of understanding the mind, there was this awareness of the left and right brain hemisphere that was coming in 1982, Nobel Prize, People began to wonder about that. Um, the, the, I found that in order to manage my stress, I would need to relax. When I was nice and relaxed, I then realised I was using my right brain, um, which because at that point there was a bit of excitement about how do you get your right brain to work. I was realising I've got it working by default. And then I woke up in the middle of the night with a dream and it was a big house across a river and... I made the connection with the idea of the corpus callosum, the part between the two hemispheres, the fibrous part of your brain. I made this connection that the river was actually my corpus callosum and the house was on the right bank of the river, which I then realised was my right brain as an idea. And then I built, created a course around people going to visit an imaginary house on the bank of a river. And in the house are lots of rooms, and in the rooms are lots of tools and techniques that you use your right brain with. And 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 believe it or not, 30 odd years on now, I'm still teaching that that process, and it's massively successful. It's really interesting, isn't it? You know, they say hindsight's a great thing, but when you look back on your life, you can see the plot marks. And as you say, yeah. you know, your 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 parents were part of it and how aspirational they were, yeah. your work as a social worker, the the deaths of those people close to you, they're little hints along the way and it can take a while for the actual plan to make sense and and, and come to fruition. Yeah, I, I think, that I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this because one of the other things that became obvious to me and still is so obvious, but is funnily enough not accepted even yet, in the mainstream, uh, or anybody looking at personal development or you've, you know looking at how do you improve your life, the mainstream talks about setting goals and it talks about you know having clarity about your goals but then it then it says to you that you should have goals but your goals should be realistic and your goals should be achievable and the truth of the matter is what I realized very early on in my journey with this was that yeah you do need to have goals you need to be aspirational however what I realized was that the men and women throughout history that had inspired me never, ever had realistic or achievable goals. <laughs> Their goals were always, at the beginning, impossible. 
And what I what I really and this is what I'd like the people to really hear is that they had no idea how they were going to achieve their goals, but they knew why they wanted to. And yet, if you look at the mainstream education, even to this day on personal growth and development, they're still banging on about the same nonsense that somehow or other you should know what your goal is. It should be realistic. It should be achievable. And you should know how to get there. You should have a plan. But it's nonsense. The men and women who actually go down that route inevitably set goals that are, that are not good enough for them. Because in order to set a goal where you know the plan, by definition, the goal has to be limited. If you don't know what the plan is, then your goal isn't limited. It's too big. And it should be too big. Because what happens is, as you've alluded to with your point, as you begin to commit to a goal, especially one that seems impossible, you get signs, you get little breakthroughs, you get things happen. And there begins to be some kind of plan emerging, but it certainly can't be identified in the beginning. So you've got a choice, everybody listening, you've got a choice. Be ordinary, do what everybody else is telling you to do in this mainstream of this work, or be extraordinary. And I tell you what, why don't you just be extraordinary? This is the part that fascinates me now, because this is what I bought into. And it's not that I've turned against it in any way, but, you know, back in my 20s, it was around the era of the Spice Girls, where you were told you could be anything you wanted to be. And everybody was really feeling this fuel and it was everywhere. And now I've begun to sort of hear a different train of thought um, about maybe celebrating the ordinary a little bit more and celebrating the mediocre. I mean, here in Ireland, we had the Celtic Tiger where everybody was like, yes, I'm going to be extraordinary. I'm going to have a big house. I'm going to have two cars in the driveway that are top of the range. I can do and be whatever I want to be. Is there a danger that we're cultivating a striving mentality that makes people feel that what they have right now isn't enough rather than happiness being the ultimate destination and being happy yeah. with where this, you are this is right a great now. Contribution. This is a great contribution to Claire. You, you already understand the context. Um, being extraordinary based on what I would call an understanding of a very simple tool I worked with called the wheel of life. The critical aspects of your life being extraordinary, not ordinary. So in other words, there's a balance. It's not just striving to be the best you can be with whatever gifts you've got. And some people have extraordinary gifts. That's obvious. You know, great musicians, actors, uh, artists and so on, uh, and, and wonderful leaders. And others have, by comparison, not such amazing gifts, but nevertheless, they have gifts. And being the best you can be with with the resources you have, it seems to me, is what this is about. Um, And it's about addressing that in every aspect of your life. You know, I've had the experience of working with so-called successful people who, oh, yes, they were successful because they had a massive big house, like you're alluding to. (laughs) But their relationships were a mess. Uh, Their health was terrible. They were completely out of balance. So you're right. But however, I, I, I think we've got to be very careful. You, you, it's very important to recognise 
and be grateful for everything you have in your life. First of all, you and I are speaking today, we're both healthy. There are people in the world right now who are not, and there are people who are obviously facing horrific situations with the, with COVID and other things in their lives, from heart disease to cancers and so on and so forth. People who are poverty-ridden. But we, it's having it's just having that ability to appreciate what you have. And one of the amazing experiences that this work gave me was to be able to work abroad. And I remember particularly being in Thailand and got some time off and we went down a river thing and I never forget it. There was there was feces floating in the in, in the river and there was children swimming and diving around. And I remember we came around this bend and there was a woman who obviously was in her at the edge of her house, which for us would be some kind of hovel, uh, rickety old bits of wood and uh, tarpaulins and God knows what. And and she was standing there doing something, and she she looked up at me on this boat, and she she put her hands together, and and she did this namaste thing, just sending pure love and appreciation for her life back to reflect to me, and it, that to me was extraordinary. That was an extraordinary human being. Yet living, living in a way that many of us couldn't even contemplate thinking about, never mind doing. So it's not about being successful at the cost of everyone else, but it's rather it's about actually being the best you can be in, in a wheel of opportunities, of, of, of description of what it is to be human. Um, so, yeah, I, I find it very interesting that some people are using this notion of mediocrity as being somehow a good thing. It isn't a good thing. Every human being deserves to be the best they can be. And helping them be that to the way that they choose, but to have the awareness that they can choose. I mean, going back to the point about the Spice Girls, they weren't necessarily talking, of course, in the context that they were all looking, wearing bling and doing all that stuff. But the truth of the matter is, um, everyone can be what they came here to be, um, to the best of their ability. And and I think we need to be very careful with the undertone negativity of ordinariness. Everybody's extraordinary. Yeah, and I think it's interesting you bring up I think it's interesting you bring up the the wheel of life because I think you're right. I think we do yeah. focus when it comes to our careers as that being the one place where we can succeed and that it has to be financial gain. And we focus on our jobs, forgetting that to be alive, to be healthy, that to have strong relationships. And if you are happy with what you have, that is the ultimate goal for everybody but if somebody has a whisper of something that they feel they'd like to do but self-limiting beliefs are holding them back such as I could never do that that could never work out whatever that might be from picking up an instrument to volunteering in a local community hall to setting up a music group it doesn't really matter whatever that is is that where you see the power of positive thinking because that's something else that's come under fire a lot recently, this idea of toxic positivity. Because like you said, back in the 80s, there wasn't as much talk about stress management. And now we've begun to talk a lot more about 
mental health, about depression, anxiety. And we're really promoting that people talk about all the parts of themselves, the good and the bad, and that we should honor that there are down days sometimes rather than pasting on everything is is fine and this uh, this notion of of toxic positivity. So where do you yeah, stand yeah. on that when, okay. when when so much of what you do encourages well, the power of positive thinking? Yes, but I've never encouraged the power of positivity other than by recognizing reality. You know, if someone if someone asks me to be in the morning, say, so how are you? I could say, Oh, I'm exhausted, I'm terrible. I'm, but why would I why would I describe myself in a way that I don't want to. Now, I might not be feeling wonderful, in which case I say, you know, I could be feeling better. I'm not denying reality, but I'm using my language and my thinking to go in a direction I want to go in. I want to be better. Whereas if I say, oh, well, you know, I'm exhausted. Well, your brain's going to think, okay, exhaustion, what does that mean? It's always processing your thoughts. And exhaustion has a certain kind of model in your brain, how that is. And so you become exhausted you're always responding to your thoughts. So you, and the one thing that we've got absolute control over, even yet, although they may, they, whoever they are, may want to take it away from you, is the ability to control your own thoughts. So I've never taught, and I never will, to teach the notion of positivity that's not aligned to reality. But it's how you describe reality to yourself that's important. Never deny the reality, but dress it in language of where you would want to go towards rather than to where you wouldn't want to go towards. And it's the subtlety of that that's important. So acknowledging you could be feeling better, acknowledging that you could have more strength, acknowledging that you could be healthier is really, really important. But it doesn't help to say, oh, I'm feeling sick. Oh, I'm very, very poor. I could I could be more prosperous. If you see what I'm doing with the subtlety of language, it's the subtlety of the language and the thinking that gives... See, what happens to us is we have a thought, then there's an action. There can't be any... Even moving my hands just now that you can see in the the video, I can't do that unless I think it first. Everything is a response to a thought. And, And as we think, so we are. And so I'm not, to me, it's very important that we never deny reality, but however, that we address it positively. (laughs) So when you set up MindStore, what was your initial intention and how did it begin? How many people did you have at at your first session? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I, because I had collapsed and I had gone off to find all this stuff, I... I wanted everybody to have it. I still would love everybody to know to know what I know because it's what changed. I'd live a completely different life than I would have done if I had stayed with my thought processes back then. Uh, and obviously, I've taught this to hundreds of thousands of people, so and indirectly millions. So you, you know, it's had a huge impact on people, like like you've said yourself. Um, but in the beginning, it wasn't easy. I mean, the the first time I had a go, I thought, how how do I get get to people and I went talk to some friends they just thought I was crazy so because they were seeing a different me than the friend we'd grown up together with and I realized I had to do something different I advertised in an evening newspaper in Glasgow to see if some you know I think it was cost me 10 pounds or something I put an ad in, 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 
for people to come and listen to me at seven o'clock in the evening in a library. And three people turned up and, and one was drunk. <laughs> and nobody responded. But it but I didn't give up. I I just kept going. I kept going and I kept going and I kept going. And eventually there was two, then there was four, then there was twenty, then there was sixty. And one of my big dreams was to fill I remember this can maybe impact the listener again is I was in I was still being a social worker. I was living I was going into Glasgow City Centre for a meeting. I drove my then beat up old mini into a car park which was spare ground or waste ground in the city centre to get to the meeting. And that morning as I was driving in, there was an announcement on the radio that the Glasgow authorities had decided to earmark that land for a concert hall. And I got out of the car and I stood there and I closed my eyes and I just imagined being on the stage in that concert hall filled with everybody and me teaching these ideas that were developing. And, you know, it took about five years, but five years later I was in that hall on that stage um, with the place full. Um, so I'd gone from two people and it grew. And, it's still, and I'm still doing what I'm doing globally. And what was the message that you were spreading then originally? Was it focusing on stress, stress management? Was it goal setting, the power of yeah. positive thinking or all of that? I, I, there was, it's interesting, it, time evolves. I mean, back then there was four principal things. Then it became five. Now it's, to me, it's six. And just briefly, the first, the first thing is that to me, there were four things that were critical. A, managing stress. I had collapsed. People had died. I knew that was still important. And I would dress that up with, with not just managing stress, but, but having bags of energy to fulfill your life, yeah, to overcome the challenges and do what you could to enhance your life. Second, to be positive, already talked about that. In other words, get rid of negativity. Just get rid of it. It's yesterday's model. Be positive. Um, never denying reality, of course. Third one was being what I call a futurist, someone that's driven by goals, passionate about things you want to have, do or be, and achieve with their life. Uh, and fourth, back then, as it emerged, because it was emerging at the time I was going through my own journey with this, is using both brain hemispheres. Our left brain is the one that education works with. Most of us don't use our right brain, yet it's the same size as the left. Let's start working with the right brain, what starts to happen, more creative, more innovative, uh, able to be more kind of knowing what's right. And this can back to the goal thing. You know, I'm not talking, people never say completely unrealistic goals, if they start using these techniques, they get to know themselves better and they know what their goal should be. It just is a fitting out of the balance that comes. Um, so that I taught that I taught courses and programs around those four things, being positive, having bags of energy, being a futurist, driven by goals, and using more of your brain very successfully, about 15 years. And then I got into helping people manage negative emotions, particularly fear and anxiety. So I added that. And now since COVID in the last 18 months, I now know absolutely, we all know if we're prepared to go and look, that we need to be metabolically flexible. Uh, because COVID-19 is obviously, it's there. But I know people deny it's there, but, but, but <laughs> it's you can't deny it's there. And nobody can deny that for some people it's dreadful and it kills people. But the thing about it is, it's only the latest. It's called 19. 
So 20 will come, 21 will come, 22 will come. And what's clear about the COVID experience is people need to be metabolically healthy. So if I was starting out again, I would add metabolic health onto, onto the, the, the previous five. So that's, that's, my, that's been my journey. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Uh, what do you think happens over the years? And I'm going to use myself as an example because it's something I, I want to share to, to tap into, not only for, for my own self, but as we get older, I think our self-limiting beliefs become greater. With aging, we sort of think, oh, I'm too old is, is something that can be thrown out to change, to start again in whatever that may be. And when you were talking about the car park that then became a concert hall that you filled out, it brought back a flashback fairly soon after I had done your course, I had to take my driving test. And I think it was something to do with work. I had to pass it in, and learn how to drive in quite a short space of time. So I think I had about 10 to 12 yeah. weeks to learn how to drive from scratch and take my test. So success was fairly unlikely. I was very nervous on the road. I was shocked that it wasn't as easy as a bumper car, that there were full shift gears to work their way through. And because there was that pressure <laughs> on me, I was stressed that I wasn't going to necessarily be able to do this. And I got to the test center that morning and I remembered what you had said and I said hello to the driving instructor. I genuinely had to go to the bathroom and I went to the bathroom and then I pictured that same man congratulating me at the end and saying, you have passed. And something yeah. in that relaxed my body and relaxed me and I stopped worrying about it. And I got through the test and I, I played the game and checked he had his seatbelt on as well as my own and I remember there was an incident I handled well, everything was fine. And at the end, he congratulated me and said I passed. Now, cut to me 20 years later, some of the dreams I may have had haven't worked out the way I anticipated they did. Many did and, and tenfold. But why do we become more cynical and focused on the things that didn't 
go right and, and lose that wide eyed innocence and enthusiasm of our early 20s and teens? It's very good, very good contribution. There's a few things maybe around what you're just talking about there I want to pick up on. I think, first of all, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, look, if, if, if we're living in a culture that's negative, and we are, if we're living in a culture that's based on 24 hours, every minute news, um, I mean, on the radio right now in the UK here, I can put, find a radio station every 20 minutes that gives you the news headlines and fills it up for 20 minutes and does it and does it and does it and does it. I've never found the news to be positive. don't think anybody listening has. So you have a negativity that's just rampant in the world that we live in. And so, and, and very often people give them half a chance to have a conversation with one another. They soon get into negatives rather than positives. And so it's very easy to focus on what went wrong there and what went well. It's just part of our culture. And, and that's why... Um, to be extraordinary, going back to my earlier point, is to be different, to to look for and accentuate the positive rather than stay on the negative. Uh, the other thing that causes us to, as we grow older, to perhaps abandon some of the types of dreams we had when we were younger is to do with comfort zones. We get comfortable and it's a subconscious, it's a major part of our, our lives uh, in our subconscious mind, we've got comfort zones about everything. And we would obviously rather stay comfortable. But to continue to achieve, you need to stretch out beyond your comfort zone. And as time goes by, we get comfortable with our surroundings, our environment, what we have, what we've done, who we are. And is there any need to change and continue to grow? Well, maybe there isn't. But nevertheless, what I find fascinating is it is, you know, regularly you find people who you admire who are in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and they're st still working. Actors, actresses, artists, people who, who choose not to retire um, from life. Um, and that, that's another whole thing about age and ageism. Um, the very fact that, you know, people aim for a retirement age. And I understand that don't get into a big argument about, but everybody should, it seems to me, should have enough to, to, to be able to live well by a certain age. But that doesn't mean to say stop contributing or stop thriving to be able to do better with your life and still achieve and still do things. Clearly, the men and women who continue to strive tend to live longer than those who just put their feet up. And I recently heard um, a story from a, a work colleague who told me his dad at 81 was emigrating to Spain because it was something he had always wanted to do his whole life. It was something his wife wasn't into, so it didn't happen. And four years after her passing, he said, I'm going middle of the pandemic, up and going in his 80s. And he said it just didn't want to be a regret of his, he didn't want to regret not doing it. And I think regret has always been a major motivating factor for me. I wanted to always give things a try and say I did. What about embracing yeah. failure then? Why do we see failure as so negative and why do we let it stop us? Like you said, you had two people in the library that day or three, one was drunk. You could have said, nah, this isn't for yeah. me. This isn't going to work out. How do we keep going when we get the knocks along the way? 
Yeah, indeed. I mean, I, I think you can be philosophical about it, and it's pretty obvious to anybody who wants to consider it. Nobody gets success easily. <laughs> you know, it, what happens is we we get so called setbacks, we get disappointments, we we get what others would describe as failure. But if you've got if you've got a quality of vision of a future that you really really want to achieve, then you never see these things as failures or setbacks. They're just learning points on a journey. They're just hurdles that you got to get over, and and you find again throughout history, well, some people with similar experience just give up, others keep going, and so you're back to the the classic thing about the basic mindset of choosing the positive, choosing the I can rather the I can't. Henry Ford, the great industrialist way back when, said something which I find myself repeating to audiences all the time. If you think you can or you think you can't, you're absolutely right. And I I find this is an amazing statement that he made. Because if I think I can't do something, then the neuroscience of my brain, the chemicals in my brain, the neurons where I've got experiences recorded and so on, everything shuts down towards not doing it. If I say to myself, I can, then a completely different neuroscience begins to happen in my brain, different chemical reactions, different synapses moving around, different recordings found, uh, different strength in my body to push myself. If I think I can or I think I can't, I'm absolutely right. And so... There's no such thing as failure. There is, of course, to ordinary people, but remember I'm saying to your audience, choose to be extraordinary. I went to one of your courses. Oh, I couldn't even tell you when it was, but I had noticed a change from the first one I went to to the last one, say, I went to, that things had got a bit more spiritual. I, I, I can't even think of the right word to describe it. It was more of a focus on feeling. So the first one had been quite about and that, that may be tailor made to the request of my HR manager at the time on goal setting yeah. and goals yeah, yeah. and positive thinking whereas in this one you seem to focus a lot on feeling and energy can you talk to me a bit about that evolution and, and how that came about yeah well what what happened I mean I, I again one of the things you may remember when you came along the first time was I was always encouraging people to repeat because Although I would teach the same course repeatedly, people hear it differently depending on where they're at in their life. And they focus on different parts of it from depending on where they are. And so some people would later on experience more of, you're saying, a kind of spiritual, spiritual thing happening when maybe not when they were younger. It was still the same program. But I know the one you mean, you came to a course where I was specifically talking about energy, which was a very advanced course type of thing that I experimented with with audiences where I was letting them begin to play with energy. The idea of projecting your, your, your thinking and your thoughts and does it where does it go and what happens. And, and, uh, and obviously when you begin to think that way, there is, for most people, a likelihood that they will begin to open doors to their mind in terms of, well, why am I here? What's this life all about? And it becomes, I suppose, spirit, spiritual is a, is a good word to use. Yeah. Although, as you'll know, I, 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 I'm never teaching teaching anything that might be remotely religious. 
uh, it's just talking about the idea of spirituality, not, not a way of doing it. And I suppose our energy is so important, isn't it? And I, you know, I think Tony Robbins is is someone I I, I follow the work of also. And he yeah. sort of says the power of positive thinking is great, but you can't stand in your garden and jump up and down saying no weeds, no weeds. One of the days you're going to have to get your gloves on and get pulling out those weeds. You know, you might picture a really nice garden, but it is going to take a little bit of work as well. So you're going to want the right energy to put in that that work and and create those steps along the way yeah yeah i mean obviously when i get people to focus on goals and use tools like visualization and so on or using images uh, of futures they want to manifest in their lives uh, it's not going to happen because you just think it you got to do so you're right it's yeah you have the thought and then you act i've always always that's been obviously important but it's acting with a a conscious awareness of what's the best thing to do at any given moment and how to respond to situations, again, that other people might describe as failure, but you see as just a step along the way. Um, But energy is very important. And and inevitably, as as I've evolved and as the world's been now threatened by this pandemic, people begin to realise, got to be very careful what I consume. Uh, what am I drinking? What am I eating? Uh, what's happening if I don't exercise? What if I'm not sleeping well? What if I'm stressed? What if I'm anxious? Uh, what's contributing towards all of this? And what's clear is we've got to have, I use metabolic flexibility as, but the notion would be that you're energetically flexible to handle uh, the, the the world that we now live in. And that will include the deterioration unless we change and let's be positive, and I'm sure we will, um, how we're dealing with our environment, what we're doing to our environment, every single one of us contributing directly or indirectly to either improving the environment or, you know, causing challenges to our planet. When you moved on with 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 MindStore and it became the huge success story it is, um, and and it was more of a, a corporate world side of things. Were you ever conflicted? having moved on from your, your social work, or did you still believe that ultimately you were helping people just in a different way? Well, I always I always ran, up until fairly recently, I always ran public courses. So I was always available for the public, and I also worked in companies. Now, the reason why I worked with corporates is quite simple. Corporates will pay for the staff to do a course that otherwise those individuals probably wouldn't buy themselves. It wasn't that I wanted to somehow or other, you know, necessarily help corporates become more corporate. It was to get to their people and people and corporates would pay for the people. Uh, that was the, the method and the, 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 the thing around that. Uh, I, and all the time, I don't shout about it, but I've never knowingly turned down a charity that wanted me to work for them. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't lost being the social worker. Uh, and uh, yeah, so... The reason why I would go through corporates is to get to their people. I find that I've got to check with myself before I take work from corporates. In the early days, because I wanted to get to the, to the individuals who worked there with my message, and not just for them, but for their families indirectly, um, I would work more or less with anyone. But, but now I'm very, very selective about who I work with. Um, what is their 
you know, what ultimately is their, their values, not so much their stated values, but their active values. What is it they're really doing? What is their contribution? What happens to the profits? Um, how do they treat their people? How do they how do they treat their customers, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Like we live we live in a world that that is function the way it's functioning, and the point is to see if we can improve it. So a big part of my work is is actually having corporates change how they get them to consider changing how they function because in most corporates they they shape they're shaped like this. It's like a it's like a pyramid or a triangle. Right at the top there's a CEO usually, and then maybe a chairperson. And, and, and it's all shaped like that. So you come in at the bottom and maybe you work your way up. And what, I, what I'm working with is getting organizations to slowly turn upside down. Because in this model, the most important person is usually the CEO and all the other people up here, of which there's a very small amount. But actually, the most important people in any organization are the ones at the other end, the ones that produce and the ones that have direct access to customers. And, and so helping companies turn around how they behave and how they function is a big part of my work in corporates. It's huge. In fact, it's my motivation. And um, slowly but surely, a lot of amazing CEOs, entrepreneurs and others grasp this. And so they're shaping their organizations and they're working in their organizations in a very different way uh, from from the mainstream. Because sometimes I think... (sighs) You know, having a good self worth is almost a a privilege. Like I'm, I'm lucky. I ended up working for a company that had me sitting at a course such as your own. Uh, that I, I felt I could yeah. chase my dreams because while I've been independent since I was nineteen, ultimately I always know if I get in serious trouble, I can ring my mom or my dad, and they would have my back. And I know not everybody is in that position. And thankfully, I haven't had to do that. And the older I'm getting, the more I know it's not really cool for me to do so. But I do often think of those born into abject poverty, born into generational social welfare, that just aren't given that opportunity to, to, to think, to think bigger. Some do push through, but it's trying to get that note of of, of self-worth and and recognizing yeah. the extraordinary in everybody yeah yeah and as i say i mean i i've done everything i can over the years to to let people come to programs uh and whilst in the early on i would let people come for free who were let's shall we say seriously disadvantaged and then i I discovered that that never worked because when I followed them up and asked them, well, are you using the tools and techniques that this person over here who paid for them personally are using them? You got it for free, are you using them? I found they weren't. And so what I what I started to change was that they had to pay, but they had to pay appropriately for what, what was seemed like a lot of money for them, which would be nothing to someone else they were sitting beside. But nevertheless, they had to do something to actually... Uh, have a transaction where they were taking ownership. And I found that that was very important. So what does the future hold for Jack Black and Mindstore? It's interesting. I, I've, I, spent the la- I spent part of the last 18 months, the first 12 months of the COVID thing, I did a, a Facebook thing every Wednesday night for people who chose it live, and then I put it on, a, on my YouTube channel, helping people understand what was happening with COVID. Um, not from an anti-vaxxer 
position or not from an anti-COVID position or an anti-establishment position, but rather just asking questions and 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 seeking out professors and seeking out doctors uh, on how best we can handle this thing if it, if it ever came through our own door, uh, and we had to embrace it. And I found I found that was really inspiring. And, and doing that, and I really enjoyed that work. And I met amazing people online like yourself when we had these interviews, and I would put them up like you'll do with this. Um, but what I obviously what happened was that public events had gone away. Uh, I found that um, I, where I find myself is that, as you know, information has become a commodity now. You just I can go come off here, go on YouTube, and I can find videos on anything. And I could find videos on anything like even my own type of stuff. Everything's available. Everything's free. It's all out there. Um, what I'm doing at the moment is I'm doing particularly a piece of work with a corporate um, globally, which will lead to opportunities to do something different for the general public. But it's not really clear yet what that's going to be. I, what I don't see myself doing again is I think I... For what it's worth, I'm a great believer in astrology (laughs) and my birth chart and when I was born and where I was born and what's been happening. And I've followed, funnily enough, from a very good Irish astrologer uh, who's been a big part of that. Um, I'm aware that my cycles, I'm I'm now in my 60s, second half of my 60s. My cycles of doing things are changing. Have changed. I've been, I've been and gone in terms of doing what I did, uh, in terms of standing in stages and getting audiences and pushing to get audiences and so on. Um, things are different. Whether I write an, a, a new book or whether I continue to do stuff on YouTube, I, I'm not sure. It's not presenting itself in such a way that it's clear. Um, but I'm but I'm really, really enjoying being busy with what I'm doing with this company, which is leading to new possibilities. So it's it's kind of in flux. Um, but I'm enjoying that. I'm still busy, but I don't I don't think I want to for two reasons. I don't think I want to be doing what I did before, which was every single week, two or three times a week, I was boarding an airplane to stand in front of an audience. Not only just for the fact of what that's doing to the planet, but um I've done it. I got the I got the T-shirt, and and, and yeah, I, I I'm I'm not sure I want to do that again. If someone turned up and said, "Look, would you come and like you asked me to do this podcast?" Of course, I want to help out. Someone asked me to stand on the stage in Dublin. I would do it, um, but I'm not going to push it myself. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting, and I think you know, so many of us have taken that slowdown to reassess how we do things and. You know, as as everything kicks back off again, many people are choosing to do it differently, a change of of season, which can only be a good thing. Yeah. I did see on, on on Facebook, one of the things you did during the pandemic was uh, have people on who have taken part in Mindstore yeah. and, and hear stories from them as to what had happened yeah. in their lives. What were the kind of stories that you, you, you were yes. hearing for people? And it didn't have to be a sort of a, rags to riches necessarily some of them were really small incremental changes people celebrating their family life people talking about you know giving up a job they weren't happy with to move to another country that must have been nice to kind of collect that because you you might not always have got to hear those actual stories 
No, that that was that that was wonderful, obviously, and you know, um, up 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 in my up in my loft, I've got files and files and files, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of letters from people over the years who did the programs, sharing their successes and their you know thanking me and all that stuff. And you're right; it's not always about becoming the billionaire or setting up that business or getting a gold medal at the Olympics. It's it's often the unsung heroes who have faced adversity and turned it round. I mean, I used to stand in the stages and say to people, yeah, a lot of you have come here because you want to improve your life and you want to go out there and achieve whatever. But some of you don't know yet, but sometime after this, you're going to face adversity. But the same tools that could make someone be a billionaire, if that's what they really, really have to do, can get someone through adversity of, of your dreadful situations, you know, life-threatening illness or sudden bereavement or, you know, being made redundant, um, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So you're right, hearing the stories of of the extraordinary ordinary, that's really what inspires me. Uh, it's just um, I've been very fortunate that people have been willing to share how they got on with my tools. <laughs> that's been helpful. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, because I know you're you're a very busy man and, you know, it's meant a lot. I do think about that girl in her early 20s sitting, just taking all of this in and, and, and flashes going off in my brain about what was achievable. And ultimately, I left my job and, and started down the road to become a TV and radio presenter and now a podcaster. So to get to sit with you for almost an hour and uh, pick at your brain and and hear about your backstory has been really fascinating and really insightful. And thank you so, so much. Well, Claire, thanks for thanks for giving me the time to actually want to hear the story, which is fantastic. And I hope your I hope your listeners continue to listen to you and get inspired by all your other guests. And hopefully some anything I've said today has been helpful for them. That would be wonderful. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.